Now, if you'll just bear with me for a moment, I'm trying to tune in a radio station that I'm sure you're going to find very interesting indeed. Now, bear in mind, what you're about to hear was recorded underwater using a hydrophone. Here we are. Have a listen to this. Great, isn't it? No presenters, no music, just the sound of killer whales calling to each other. The station is called Orca FM, Orca being the scientific name for killer whales. It's run by Vancouver Aquarium in Canada and it broadcasts live from July through to October when pods of killer whales congregate in Johnston Strait, a narrow stretch of water sandwiched between Vancouver Island and British Columbia. It's here the whales gorge themselves on shoals of salmon as they return to their spawning grounds. The reason this station is so different to any other in the world is that it is the first of its kind, just as Keiko is, the first killer whale to be released back to the wild. Keiko is a dream of millions of children. Uh, they saw the film, and they basically called adults to task and said, free the animal that was freed on film. And they wrote letters, and they sent in their quarters and their pennies and their dollars. And adults then said, the kids are right. Well, it's about a boy called Jesse, and he's got abandoned from his mother and father, so he has foster parents. And he does spray painting in the aquarium, and he is told to clean it up, and he becomes friends with Willie, and then he finds out that people are going to try to kill him so they can make him a million pounds. And then he, he tries to, set, to free Willie, and then he frees Willie, and that's why it's called Free Willie. And who's Willie? The, the whale. <laughs> and do you know what his real name is? Willie. No, it's Keiko. It's Keiko? Yeah. All oh, right. When Free Willy hit the big screen in 1993, not even Warner Brothers predicted the impact it would have. It was a huge success. Almost every child on the planet saw the movie, and Free Willy fever was everywhere. But despite grossing over $200 million at the box office, there was no watery mansion in Beverly Hills for the film's big name. When Life magazine called on Keiko for a photo shoot, they found him living in an inadequate facility in a Mexican marine park. He was undernourished and suffering from a serious skin condition, which caused lesions to form around his pectoral fins and tail. Readers were shocked at the terrible condition Keiko was in. They flooded Warner Brothers with letters pleading them to set him free. Warner Brothers agreed, and with the full cooperation of Keiko's owners and a private donation, the Free Willy Foundation was established. Keiko was going home. Home was the icy cold waters of the North Atlantic around the coast of Iceland. It was from here that Keiko was taken 20 years ago. Now, Icelanders aren't exactly whale friendly. Getting them to take Keiko back was always going to be an uphill struggle one that would require more subtlety than muscle. It was important to have someone on board in Iceland to front the project, someone the locals would trust. They sent out a team here in uh, late November in 1997, 
to really check if Iceland really wouldn't say no to whether cake was allowed back to Iceland because everybody expected uh, Iceland to say no. So Dave Phillips came to me at that point in time and, and we had a short meeting, brief meeting. And uh, he met some people then, most of them said, no, no way. Although uh, one man, he just sort of, uh, just opened the door and said, well, we are ready to look into it. And that was Mr. David Otson, Iceland's uh, Prime Minister. Enter Haller Halsen, the gay burn of Icelandic television. I had been in the media for 20 years. Uh, I had been in TV for a decade, so I am very well known in this country. I had uh, uh, founded my own company in 1994, public relations company called Matters and Media, and also a publication house called Growth. I suppose that's why they turned to me. So you had the trust of the people and the ear of the Prime Minister. The trust, of course, came from the Free Willy Keiko Foundation and, they, and the way they presented themselves. Uh, I was just a sort of go-between, uh, between the government and the various organisations and agencies here in Iceland and the Free Willy Keiko Foundation. Yes, it was a matter of creating trust, and that trust was created, that's true. And why were they saying no? And why did the Free Willy Keiko Foundation feel then that they would say no? There had been one or two applications of organisations who had asked for uh, permits to bring back killer whales to Iceland. Uh, they had been turned in to the fishery ministry but had got the reply, no, no way. You're not allowed to bring uh, killer whales back to Icelandic waters. So that's why everybody felt that uh, Iceland would say no. And is that why Scotland and Ireland were considered? Yes, basically I think that, that they were considering bringing uh, Keiko back to Ireland. I think Ireland definitely uh, was in front of Scotland uh, because they felt that uh, Iceland would say no anyway. What made the government change their mind? Why did they decide that Keiko was going to be allowed to come back here even though other applications had been refused? Well, as I said, uh, Prime Minister Rodson, he really opened the door and said, OK, we're ready to look into it. Uh, and his view on the matter was that uh, this is a free country, so people are, and organisations are allowed to do whatever they want to do as long as it doesn't go against the law. At that point in time, it was only a question of proving that Keiko was in good health, because if Keiko was in good health, then being a free country, Iceland would allow Keiko back. And... Uh, and that turned out to be so. Scientists in the uh, uh, United States, they, they examined Keiko and they declared that Keiko was in excellent health, in fact, that he had fully recovered. So there was, no, there was nothing in the way to uh, uh, prevent, his return. prevent Keiko's return. But what were the terms and conditions of the contract between the Free Willy Keiko Foundation and the Icelandic government? Basically, the conditions are that we take care of Keiko in accordance with Icelandic law. That is the only condition uh, Icelandic, the Icelandic government set uh, when uh, Prime Minister Otson issued that it was OK to bring Keiko back. So Iceland said yes. For two years, Keiko was being prepared for this next stage of the journey at the Oregon Coast Aquarium. He had made a full recovery. 
His skin lesions were gone, he was eating live fish, essential if he was to survive in the wild, and he had gained weight, almost 2,000 pounds. The journey from Oregon to Iceland would take eight and a half hours, and with a cargo this valuable, there was only one carrier for the job, the US Air Force. On the 9th of September 1998, the world's most famous killer whale took to the skies in a giant C-17 cargo transporter. Final destination, Vestmanaier, the Westman Islands to you and me, an archipelago off southern Iceland. Waiting to greet him on arrival, the world's media. This was big news. Mind you, not everyone was impressed. Omar Garderson is editor of the Westman Islands local newspaper, Fritter. There were no fuss here in Westman Islands because of Keiko coming here. I think the people on the mainland, they, they focused more on, on Keiko coming to Westman Islands but we, uh, we did here in, in Westman Islands. We have seen more than Keiko. <laughs> when you say you've seen more than Keiko, what do you mean? And then I mean the er- eruption in 1973, when one-third of the, 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 the willets went under lava and, and ashes. Keiko coming here is more an American show than an Icelandic. You call it a show? Yeah, it is a show. But the purpose uh, can be positive. I, I can see that if, if uh, you know, we are living in a world that we are... are uh, we have environmental problems, so if it opens our eyes to the sea and, and, and uh, the importance of keeping it clean, then, uh, then it's okay. With all this attention focused on Keiko in a country where hunting whales are second nature, one would think that Keiko would be the perfect weapon to use in the propaganda war against those who wish to resume whaling. Not so, according to Charles Vinnick, Executive Vice President of Ocean Futures, the organisation responsible for looking after Keiko while he's in Iceland. It was not part of the agenda of the Freeway Keiko Foundation, nor is it part of the agenda of Ocean Futures today to try to influence internal policy of Iceland. And the Icelandic people basically just welcomed the whole enterprise. Mm. And the issue around Parliament making decisions actually followed Keiko's arrival here, and the whaling issue became more prominent. So certainly media have asked us about it more of late than they did at the outset. But I think most recognize that the two are very separate issues. And it, the Keiko story is really a story of the heart. And yes, it has implications about how we as a species treat whales and treat the oceans. But it's not a whaling issue. These are not a species that have ever been whaled, uh, this particular species of whale, the orcas. And as we go forward with it, it can't help but raise social concern, raise the issues about how we treat the oceans, but it's a very separate issue than the issues around the cultural history of whaling and the like that is steeped in, in cultures and is a much more complicated issue. To really understand an Icelander's attitude to whaling, you must first realize that they are an island race, a nation of hunters who truly believe in the survival of the fittest. And although orcas were never hunted as a species, some fishermen regard them as a threat to their livelihood. In fact, when rumours were muted that Keiko would come to Iceland, threats to shoot him on sight were sent to the newspapers. One man was even arrested, but later released without charge. 
When I was growing up in my little fishing village where I was born in the West Fjords, it was a very common sight for me to see the minke whales come in to the town or to the village uh, a few times each summer uh, with maybe two minke whales on their side, flensing them up on the harbour side and, and cutting them. And we came down with the wheelbarrows and bought some meat which went into the freezer. So this was a common dish at that time. Uh, and it's been a traditional uh, dish in Iceland for a long, long time that uh, the whales were, were har- harvested for this purpose. And uh, I think, in a way, it's, it's my contact with a lot of tourists that have been coming through UK uh, mainly, and uh, my friends who live there, uh, that I, I started seeing things maybe differently. But it's just, when I, when I first experienced the whales in their natural habitats, it just sort of got into me and, and I got goosebumps. And uh, in a way, the, the foreign tourists uh, influenced me in a way because they were, they were shouting with delight. They were screaming their heads off. Uh, they really enjoyed it. And, and when I saw the effects that the whales could actually have on people, I started thinking differently, I think. And the Icelanders have been saying, or my friends have been saying, these, these funny foreigners are screaming their heads off over whales. I think Icelanders, they view whales and nature in a different way to many other people. Uh, it's what we base our life on. Uh, fish is, covers about 85% of all export income, and, uh, which is a lot for a small nation. And uh, we are reliant on that the fisheries maintain in the same way. And uh, the whales are viewed in the same way, just as any other natural resource. They don't see it as a mammal, as a, as a warm-blooded, breathing mammal that gives birth to calves and feeds on milk. They just look at it as a, a, any other natural resource. A former consultant engineer, Asbjorn Bjorgvesen, is now director of the Husafik Whale Centre in the north of Iceland. He is also one of the leading campaigners against the resumption of whaling. He firmly believes that the future is in watching whales, not hunting them. In Iceland, it's very important that you base your arguments on uh, economics, never on feelings. If I would show any feelings towards whales that I'm doing this because I love the whales so much, it would mean the end of, <laughs> of my, my uh, debate uh, regarding whale watching than whaling. When whaling was on in 1989, it brought in about... 500 million kroner, or it was worth 500 million for the economy. We have calculated that the total value of whale watching, like last year, is something like 800 million kroner, about uh, 8 million UK pounds. So I feel, in a way, that, that we've already broken that barrier, that whale watching is now worth more for the economy of Iceland than whaling can be. But then, uh, when you look at the other side effects, if whaling will be taken up, on the basis of the pride of the nation, mm-hmm. an island nation that wants to rule and determine whether that we are using these resources in the sea that are around Iceland. I feel that this will have such a negative effect on our export markets regarding fisheries uh, that only a slight decrease in price on the fish markets uh, abroad will also have uh, the effect that all the economy of Iceland will lose. And then if you also consider that the chances of, of people voting by their feet not c- turning up in Iceland regarding well, whale-watching tourists or just tourists in general, 
this is also going to have a negative effect. And uh, it's very easy to target the Icelandic uh, products, the fisheries products, because they're all labelled and sold under the trademark Icelandic. Listening to Asbjorn, you might well be forgiven for thinking that Keiko is a godsend to the Westman Islands, a licence to print money. After all, just look what Fungi has done for Dingle. But nothing could be further from the truth. Scylla, Sigmar's daughter, runs the Westman Islands Tourist Information Centre on Hema A, the largest and only inhabited of the 15 islands in the archipelago. As far as she is concerned, Keiko will have to try harder if he's to reach the superstar status of the four million puffins that live on the islands. It was a lot of hassle here around uh, September last year. When he arrived. And we had very high hopes um, of uh, increasing in tourism and in, um, well, like, there was this idea of building a great big um, natural museum, something like a Keiko museum and, and aquarium and, uh, yes, uh, just a big museum with everything bound together. It was a very, very good idea and other ideas like that. But um, Keiko is doing so well that they're even thinking already that they might let him go, so. <laughs> so, um, well, we thought we could uh, have more use of him than we have. When you say um, more use, what do you mean? Um, like, we thought we would get more tourism, for example. And that didn't happen? Uh, no, there's more, uh, it's only the Americans and the Icelanders who like to come and see him. Uh, people from Europe, from, from Germany, from France, from Scandinavia, they don't like to, to go and see Keiko. They want to go and see the puffins, go out walking on the new lava and things like that. They're not interested in, in Keiko. And why do you think that is? Um, they don't find him as fascinating as the puffin. People are very fascinated by the puffins, firstly, I would think. And then again... Well, the, there was a lot of discussion about Keiko last year, but probably not as much in Europe as we thought. So it just hasn't... A lot of people that come here don't even know that Keiko is here. I've been <laughs> surprised by it. When people have come here into my information centre and I've told them about Keiko, and then they have replied by saying, oh, I didn't know he was here. I thought he was somewhere else. Isn't he in the States? Or <laughs> so, <laughs> so we thought people would maybe know. Yeah. So there hasn't been a noticeable increase in the numbers of people travelling to the Westman Islands as a direct result of Keiko being based here? No, not yet, yet at least. But it might be, though, be a different story next year. I suppose I kind of understand what Scylla is saying. Performing orcas bring in big bucks for aquariums all over the world, and having the most famous one of all in your backyard, the very least you'd expect to do is to show him off. But then, that's not why he's here. Keiko is not in Iceland to entertain the punters. Those days are over. The next trick he'll perform will be a leap to freedom. Yeah, we're just leaving the harbor here, and, and you can see some of the f local fishing boats in the harbor, and, and uh, we'll be heading out to Kletsvik Bay, and that's where we have, uh, have Keiko. It's a beautiful place, isn't it? Really striking beauty. It is. It's spectacular, and it changes. You know, every time I come back, it's, it's something different, and, and that's what's so exciting about this place is that it's just it's, it's beautiful. And in the spring, we got the birds. In the winter, we got the wild weather, and, and it changes all the time. So this is it. I'm on my way to meet Keiko. I've been close to killer whales before. I actually touched one once when I was about 14 in an aquarium. 
I'll never forget the feeling. It was just like a diver's wetsuit. Mind you, there'll be no fear of touching Keiko. Human contact is kept to a minimum. If Keiko is to return to the wild, then he must act and behave like a wild orca. And that doesn't include pats on the head and big sloppy kisses. Uh, watch your footing here, Derek. It's a little, little tough getting off the boat here. As we step off the launch onto Keiko's floating pen, Jeff tells me not to stare at Keiko and takes me straight into the dry house. Well, what we want to do is we want to discourage him from, from watching us in our activity above water. So, so what we do is initially when we first pull up in the boat, boat, he's very curious. And so we want to have him just concentrate on his natural environment, swim and keep those swim patterns uh, as, as natural as possible. So by going into the dry house, um, he, he realizes there's not nothing there for him to watch. Um, these animals are acoustically linked to their, to their environment. Their hearing is extremely good. And, and we want to get him uh, watching what's, what's surrounding him. Most of the activity he's seen and most of the stimulation has come from above water. He is, you know, it's whether it's the, the children in the audience or, or doing the training sessions or whether they're working on the pen or they are the, in some cases, you know, the, the aquarium. And now what we've done is we've, we want to change that focus from above water to below water. And it's working very, very well. How long have you been involved with the project? Uh, going on three years. So uh, since pretty much since the Free Willy Keiko Foundation uh, took control over uh, the, the next phase of the project. And how were you found? Um, they came What's to your me, background? You know, I have special skills. I've, I've been involved with uh, Killer Whale since uh, 1970. I was uh, in charge of some of the captures and, and transports of Killer Whales uh, all over the world. So you were capturing killer whales? Yeah, at one point. Yeah. For whom? Uh, for various organizations, SeaWorld and some of the organizations in Japan and Europe. And where has been the sea change in your mind? How did it change? Things have changed. I mean, we, what was acceptable 20 or 30 years ago is no longer acceptable now. These are, these are marvelous animals, and we're, as we understand them better, we know what the requirements are. Keiko's floating pen is anchored in Kletzvig Bay, just off the island of Hema'e. To use an Americanism, it's an awesome sight, like something from a Bond movie. If you were to have a bird's eye view, it would look similar in shape to an hourglass divided into two sections, the smaller of which acts as a medical pool for routine examinations and treatment. The swimming area is much larger and is used for what Jeff calls energy sessions. Jeff Foster is Director of Field Operations and Research with Ocean Futures. In a nutshell, he is the man responsible for ensuring Keiko's safe return to the wild. It's an onerous task. Remember, Keiko is the first captive killer whale to be returned to the wild. And if it doesn't work, he may well be the last. Nothing is left to chance. Every breath, breach and dive Keiko makes is recorded and analysed. Well, you can see we have some, uh, a bunk here in case uh, somebody needs some rest. Uh, so there's some of our research equipment down here on the lower bunk. Uh, we have hydrophones, cameras, all sorts of things down here to record any kind of interactions with, with wild whales or, or anything unusual with Keiko. We have a little bathroom in here, and, and then this is our this is our office and uh, monitoring area. And you can see some of the the, the uh, cameras that we have. We have some underwater cameras as well as above water cameras. We have hydrophones to record his vocalizations, and that goes and we do that 24 hours a day. We we tape 24 hours a day, so we don't miss anything, whether it's uh, VHS tapes or uh, you know, and, or or the acoustical stuff. After some more careful instruction from Jeff on how to behave in Keiko's presence, I was taken outside for my first encounter. There was Keiko, head out of the water, and Brian, one of his trainers, encouraging him to be vocal. Good job! If you look at Brian now, he's, he's uh, going to be working Keiko on uh, doing some vocalizations and some uh, peck and tail slaps, and uh, he's just giving a hand signal there to uh, do a vocalization. 
he vocalizes naturally when he's out in the pen, and, and uh, it, it varies on, you know, how much, depending on how good a mood he's in or, or what's going on in the bay, but, but he's a fairly vocal animal. He, he uh, um, you know, we, again, we monitor that 24 hours a day, and then we, then we use those, those tapes, we send it off to Woods Hole, and, and then they try to analyze uh, his dialect. In the marine environment, sound is essential for survival. Killer whales use echolocation for navigating, communicating and finding food. The range of sounds is vast, from grunts and snorts to discreet squeaks that I'm told can be heard up to five miles away. Normally these are used to keep the pod together if one should stray. Killer whales remain with the same pod for life, only leaving briefly to mate. Researchers believe that apart from having the ability to communicate with other pods, family pods have their own distinct dialect. And if Keiko is to find his own pod, he needs to be a good singer. But will they recognise him? There can't be too many killer whales with bent dorsal fins knocking about. Mark Carwardine is a marine biologist who has spent the past 20 years studying and photographing killer whales. Several killer whales in captivity do have bent over dorsal fins and a lot of people say that is because they're unhealthy, unhappy and so on. There's at least one in the wild we know of that has a bent over dorsal fin as well. Um, it doesn't seem to affect the wild individual, it seems to be as healthy as all the others in its pod. It's, it's one of these strange things, we know so little about whales, they're surrounded by mystery and why whales have dorsal fins in the first place we're not entirely sure because some big whales I mean southern right whales for example have no dorsal fin at all and yet they survive just as well as any other whales with dorsal fins the biggest in the world the blue whale has a tiny tiny little dorsal fin on the top killer whale has the biggest the male dorsal fin can grow up to about six feet in height so as tall as me um, female one is smaller so because of that sexual difference it may have something to do with that um, one other theory is it acts as a sort of radiator so that the whale can cool off. If it's being very active, swimming fast underwater, there's a risk of it overheating because it's like it's surrounded in a big blanket. I mean, a whale has a big layer of blubber all around it, so if it does a lot of exercise, it does overheat quite easily. So by hanging on the surface, the heat can be lost from the dorsal fin, just like heat would be lost from a radiator. What do you think his chances are of survival if and when he's returned to the wild? I think they're excellent. The truth is we don't really know because no killer whale has been released from captivity into the wild before. We've got a lot of experience with dolphins being released very successfully. Dolphins that have been in captivity for as long as 20 years have been released very quickly and they've been recited 10 years or more later. So we know it can be done. Um, what we don't know is how a killer whale is going to cope. The main difference between a killer whale and a dolphin is the way the social structures worked out. And the biggest worry would be that Keiko would never be able to join a family group of killer whales. Now, the chances are that he'll never find his original family from, that he was taken from in the late 1970s. So assuming he doesn't come across them, will another pod accept him? We don't know. Well, will they? Because it's been said the only way to get into a pod is to be born into it, and the only way to leave a pod is to die. Yeah, that, that's what we thought until the last few years. But in fact, in the last few years, there's been some research in Canada particularly that has demonstrated that killer whales that aren't related to other members of the pod have joined the pod. That's the first evidence we've ever had that it can happen. So in theory, he might be accepted to other pods. The other point is that a lot of 
individual killer whales, male killer whales, have been seen in the wild, living on their own and apparently perfectly healthy and happy. But will there be a language barrier? Well, that's an interesting thing because they, the, the whales definitely have different dialects uh, to the degree that you can actually, if you are studying a population of killer whales, you can tell just by listening to their vocalisations which pod they come from. So Keiko's vocalisations are very distinctive and very specific to his pod. How much those vocalisations have changed since he's been in captivity, we don't know. Um, they've almost certainly changed a bit. He was very quiet. He didn't vocalise at all in Mexico and relatively little in Oregon. He's vocalising more now in Iceland. So basically killer whales are all vocalising the same but with these different dialects. So he'd be understood by other killer whales whether they would recognise which pod he comes from or not. We're not quite sure. If he does manage to join a pod, and if he is accepted, he will have to learn a lot of new things, or things that he has possibly forgotten, like hunting, because whales hunt in groups, don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, a killer whale pod will hunt underwater in a similar way that a wolf pack will hunt. For example, if they're hunting a school of fish, some of them will swim around the school, bring it into a tight ball, and then they'll take it in turns to, to dive in, grab a fish, come out the other side again then they'll carry on helping to keep it into a ball while the next one takes its, its turn. So if you're an animal like Keiko that hasn't done this for years and years and years, perhaps never done it at all as a youngster, uh, it's going to be quite a, a steep learning curve to know when it's his turn to go into the centre of the school of fish, where he's supposed to be in the row of whales that are keeping him into a tight ball and so on. But having said that, there's no reason why he can't learn because they're always adapting to a changing environment. So a killer whale is basically made to change and to learn. Just because he hasn't done it for so long doesn't mean to say he can't pick up on it in the future. Despite his optimism for Keiko's future, Mark still has some reservations. From the outside, as an observer, what, what I don't understand is there, there doesn't seem to be the motivation to actually release Keiko as soon as possible. You talk to all the orca experts around the world and, and they almost all say... You take him to Iceland, you just check on him for a couple of months and you let him go. That's what should have happened. What's actually happened is that he's actually gone back in several steps in the way he's being prepared for the outside world. For example, he was taking live salmon in Oregon. When he arrived in Iceland, they stopped providing live salmon and went back to dead ones. Now, to me, that's a complete backward step. doesn't make any sense at all. When I asked the people doing it why, they basically said, well, there's no point in making life unnecessarily hard for Keiko. You know, it just doesn't add up. To me, life is hard in the world. You've got to prepare him for it. And whether it's hard or not, that's what has to be done. And they also spent a huge amount of time and money on this very plush sea pen, which really wasn't needed for more than a couple of months. And in fact, I think it's going to be used for years to come. And this is one of the reasons I think the chances are he'll still be there, not just in 12 months' time, but in two years' time, three years' time. There will always be differing views on the best approach to take when it comes to releasing captive animals to the wild. Nonetheless, I put Mark Howardine's concerns to Charles Vinnick, the Executive Vice President of Ocean Futures. There is a complete protocol for introducing him or reintroducing him to live fish in the timing toward his reintroduction program. So I would agree that that individual is correct and it's all part of the program going forward. He has already eaten live fish in Oregon. He's eaten some when he was here last summer when we did them, but not in the consistent way we need to do it as we go forward for reintroduction, and that will all start in these coming days. In addition, he needs uh, to be in the best possible physical condition, and he needs to be behaviorally trained 
not to react to every boat. His stimulation over the last 20 years comes from people. When he's out in the wild, we don't want him to see the boats and turn to them, come back to them the way he would out of his normal stimulation. So we're carefully and methodically, and much of this is documented with other release programs, taking him from having been stimulated by all of our, our environment to getting his stimulation beneath the surface of the water in his environment, and it's a slow process. It's a process you have to do very carefully. In addition, we made a commitment early on with the Free Willy Keiko Foundation to release him with a tag, and the kind of tags that are needed for five, six, 12 months of being able to follow what happens to him and make sure he's okay hadn't been built. So that tag is under development. We're funding the research with an outside research team, and that'll take till March to be, to be developed. In addition, there are only certain periods of time when you can release an animal like Keiko to his own kind. And that tends to be when the fish are near the Westman Islands that bring the orcas in migration nearby. So all of these ingredients have to come together, and the timing for that has not been before now. It is as we move into the year 2000. That's, that's the, the plan from the outset, and it's the right plan. Looking at Keiko swim around his pen, I felt there was a confidence and grace in the way he moved. It was almost as if he was biding his time. The penultimate stage of this release is imminent. An 858-foot barrier net has just been secured in place across the mouth of Pletsvik Bay, giving Keiko more room to manoeuvre. The net is designed to have very, uh, it has a very large mesh so that fish can come and go and we don't have to worry about birds getting entangled in it. We don't want to do that. And, and we also have, has, have adapted it so that it, it, it has, or modified it so that it has a lead line on it to keep it very, very taut. Now Keiko echocates a lot and, and he's also a very visual animal. So he'll know that that net is there. And these animals are very, very cautious. So he'll come up and he may test it a little bit, but it'll be taut enough that he won't, he won't get entangled in it. So you can just rub his nose off. Yeah, like yeah, that. he can rub on it a little bit, and it, it's not gonna. We're not gonna have a problem with him getting entangled in it. And then explain the gate to me. Yeah, what well, we have a gate. gate. Well, well, the next step is is really uh, to train him to you know to use a gate. And, and so first, we'll, you know, we're starting the initial training here in the bay pen so that he's going in and out of the gate and getting used to it being closed behind him. And then we will, what we'll do is we'll modify the barrier net and put a gate in place there so that we can start taking him on open ocean walks. And we'll start the initial training on the boat training here in the bay. So he'll you know, follow the boat so that we can uh, you know, get him used to doing that and get him around the, the various vessels that we'll be using. We're going to have an acoustical callback so that, that if we want to call him back that we will play a tone and, and he will come to us. And, and then the next step is is taking him for walks out in the ocean and and uh, and we'll take him for walks and gradually take him further and further get him used to deeper water and start to train him to, to dive uh, to the depths that he would normally be feeding and 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 at some point what we'll do is we will take him for a walk out to uh, you know a group of other orcas in the area so it's it's important to identify what kind of animals we have out there and that's what we did last summer with our photo id work and our acoustical work and uh, we'll continue to do that through the rest of the year. And, but then, hopefully, next, next spring or summer, we will take him out and expose him to his own kind, and, and we'll see how he responds. Do you think he will recognize the family when he gets out into the wild? Well, they have, 
it's, it's hard to say. He has not been with another cetacean for a long time. Um, and again, that's what's unique about a, a project like this because there are so many unknowns. And if we can answer some of the questions and develop new technologies to be able to study these whales in a captive situation or in a wild setting, then, then we're better off in understanding these animals in the long run. Uh, their environment is changing very rapidly. We're overfishing, the, you know, most of the oceans in the world, um, and we know so little about, you know, about the populations of of whales and marine mammals, and really in the fish stocks out there. We don't know what kind of impact we're we're causing to them. Uh, but by studying the top predator of the ocean, which is the top of the food chain, it should be an indicator species to see how some of the other species are doing within that the water column. What's your gut feeling, though? I think I think he's going to do very well. I think that he has, you know, they're a very a very smart animal. They're very they they adapt very readily to different situations. I think that they, and they're a very social animal. And I think those social instincts are going to take over, and that he's going to want to interact with his own kind. He'll be able to communicate with his own kind, and this will be the first time in, in many, many, many years. So it's going to be fun to see how he responds. And that's really, that's going to be the exciting time. That's when we're going to be able to, to, to learn a lot. And it's the plan to track him when he is released. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's... how do you feel about that? Because I have mixed feelings about mm-hmm. that. I, I think that when he's freed, he's freed, and that's yeah. it, and that's how it should be. Yeah, well, I agree, you know, to some extent. But the, the, the value, the research value, of, again, of the project like this is, is tremendous. We can... He could, he could act like the ambassador of, of his kind to be, be able to bring back information from the wild whales. We, what we want to do is, is uh, the, one of the main reasons why we're putting telemetry on him to track him reliably is, is that, that if he does run into any kind of dangers, if we just open the gate and let him go and he swims off, we don't know how well he's doing. If, if he, if he you know, isn't able to make it out there on his own, we need to be able to intervene and, and try to prepare him a little bit better for that. And so, so if we have an opportunity to learn more about the, you know, the species and, to, again, to develop the technology to be able to study them a little more reliably, you know, then we're doing our job. We've already, we've already changed attitudes about uh, and, and perceptions about these animals. We've come up with alternative methods of displaying these animals in a captive setting, like this bay pen here. We've developed technology like uh, the Keiko cam, so we can put a suction cup camera on the back of the whale to be able to, s- to see his view, to see how he's eating, to see how he's interacting with other animals. We've we've developed new uh, acoustical techniques to be able to study these, you know, to study their vocalizations. There, there's a, a, a number of different things that, that, um, that we can learn from this. And, and again, you know, we've, if we go no further than this, we've, uh, we've really added a lot to the scientific knowledge about these animals. But if you go no further, it's going to be a costly business keeping in here. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but we have, you know, we made a promise to the, to the people and the children around the world to be able to take care of him for the rest of his life, and, you know, and, and provide him the, the top quality care. And, and we've done that. And I'm very proud of that. Before I left the pen, I looked once more at Keiko. Right into his big black eye. And you know, I swear, he knew who I was and why I was there. It sounds silly, but in my mind I said, Hello, Keiko. And he in return said, Hello, Derek. If there was ever a time I felt frustrated at my inability to communicate, it was then. There were so many questions I wanted to ask him. Did he forgive us for taking him from his family? Did he think he would find them again? And if he did... Would they accept him after so long? We took this beautiful creature with his tailor-made tuxedo halfway around the world to perform for our amusement. And not once did he complain. Not once did he lash out at his handlers. Not once did he fail to perform. We need our heads examined. We really do. Next May and June, when millions of herring fill the waters of the North Atlantic and pods of orcas compete for the catch, Keiko, hopefully, 
will be released. And what I'd give to see that. But what of the remaining 51 orcas still in captivity? Will Ocean Futures make the same efforts to free them? No. First of all, if you look at each of those facilities, more than 70% of the animals in captivity were born in captivity. That's a completely different set of circumstances in terms of release uh, that has not even been, been contemplated by most, most of those organizations. Secondly, and you brought it up at the outset, the cost of doing this is very large. And to think about incurring that kind of cost, animal by animal by animal, is probably neither necessary nor realistic. The purpose of this project is, is Keiko. We didn't seek out what's the, what's the ideal animal to bring to Iceland and try to release. No, Keiko was part of a film. He was the animal in Free Willy. That's what drove this forward. And it really is a project of the heart. It has both great, re great reality and substance in Keiko himself, and it has a symbolic activity about how we're treating the, the, the oceans, not just the animals in the ocean, but the oceans and how we relate to the oceans as a species as we move into the new millennium. And I think that's what this project is about, and that's its legacy, not going aquarium to aquarium and trying to do something that, that frankly is unrealistic and, and not part of our mission. Keiko is a dream come true for millions of children, both big and small. And for as long as he survives, he will remain the trump card in the fight against the cruelty of watery zoos. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.